Today's episode explores the rumor that Saddam Hussein stockpiled PlayStation 2s for military use in the early 2000s. Also, I'm going to take a look at a theory surrounding Disney's Aladdin from 1992. My name is Kenneth Zally, and welcome to The Strange Collective. With the launch of the PlayStation 5 on the horizon, I thought it would be fun to discuss an old conspiracy involving Sony's PlayStation 2. The claim was that Saddam Hussein stockpiled as many as 4,000 PlayStation 2 consoles so that he could connect them to one another to form some kind of supercomputer that could pilot unmanned drones or perform nuclear test simulations. The initial source of this claim was a right-wing rag blog called WorldNet Daily back in late 2000. For some context, this site would go on to pride themselves for spreading the conspiracy theory that Barack Obama was not a natural-born U.S. citizen and would also petition for years for the birth certificate to be released to the public. An unidentified source was reported as saying, quote, Most Americans don't realize that each PlayStation unit contains a 32-bit CPU every bit as powerful as the processor found in most desktop and laptop computers, end quote. The source further claimed the graphics capabilities of a PlayStation are staggering, five times more powerful than that of a typical graphics workstation, and roughly 15 times more powerful than the graphics card found in most PCs. Now to me, all of this sounds like someone either trying to market the PS2, or just some Sony fanboy that got really excited about it. WorldNet Daily would go on to add that a single PlayStation can generate up to 75 million polygons per second. Polygons, as noted in the DIA report, are the basic units used to generate the surface of 3D models, extremely useful military design and modeling applications. Bundled PlayStation computers could also be used to calculate ballistic data for long-range missiles or in the design of nuclear weapons. Iraq has long had difficulty calculating the potential yield of nuclear devices, a critical requirement in designing such weapons. Networking these computers might provide a method for correcting this deficiency. A further claim stated that an integrated bundle of 12 to 15 PlayStations could provide enough computer power to control an Iraqi unmanned aerial vehicle or UAV. It's hard at first to toss these ideas aside, especially looking back 20 years later with how impressive technology has become. These claims back in the year 2000 weren't completely crazy, considering how Sony was marketing the console and some early controversies surrounding exporting it outside of Japan. While Sony was tooting their own horn regarding the PS2, the Trade Ministry of Japan dropped an edict on Sony. In order to ship the console abroad, they would need to request a special permit. The law in Japan required any exporter wishing to ship hardware with potential military applications worth more than $472 outside the country to obtain permission from the government or face up to five years in prison. Considering the price of each PlayStation 2, bulk shipments would have been a problem. Sony applied for a special export permit to ship the consoles globally, with a few countries blacklisted. Libya, Iran, Iraq, and North Korea were considered potentially likely to use the console for nefarious purposes. Between Japan's skepticism of other countries, the marketing of the PS2, and rising tensions in the Middle East, it made sense for this perfect storm to exist, with this rumor of Saddam Hussein spreading. With our knowledge now, we know that this rumor proved to be untrue. Saddam never imported PS2s on some mass scale. If anything, there were probably a couple PS2s imported into the country for Saddam's men to blow off steam. Now, while this initial claim against Saddam was untrue, the idea of linking multiple consoles together to form a larger, stronger computing unit was not some crazy sci-fi dream. 
In 2002, Sony released Linux for the PlayStation 2. It came packaged with a 40 gig hard drive, a USB keyboard, and a mouse. With this, you could essentially turn the console into a personal computer. This caught the eye of a group at the National Center for Supercomputing Applications. They saw the cost to performance ratio for the PlayStation 2's processors as a win and decided to experiment. The team networked 60 to 70 PlayStation 2s, built a library to perform a variety of tasks distributed across their processors, and powered it on. It wasn't a runaway success, and it was bugged enough to the point that it required constant rebooting. The team would unfortunately abandon this project because of this. The idea of using Sony's consoles as a massive supercomputer didn't die though. In 2010, the US military purchased 1,760 PlayStation 3s and linked them together at the Air Force Research Lab to create the 33rd most powerful supercomputer on the Earth at the time. They gave the supercomputer the name Condor Cluster, and it would perform 500 trillion floating point operations per second, which for those that are current on the specs of the next-gen consoles, these would be the teraflops that are always talked about that uh, people on the internet wrongly compare and don't know what the hell they're talking about when they're talking about the teraflop difference between an Xbox Series X and a PlayStation 5. But I digress. So anyway, it could perform 500 trillion floating point operations per second, or teraflops, and was used for analyzing high-def satellite imagery. The Department of Defense calculated that purchasing comparable hardware to construct the same cluster from scratch could cost 10 times as much. Most of the PS3-based supercomputers have been broken down and sold, however, but there still is one at the University of Massachusetts Dartmouth, where it's used to run various simulations. So while the rumor of Saddam Hussein stockpiling PS2s was all just a bunch of bullshit, it's still incredible to see how capable these consoles were and even are to this day. It also puts into perspective just how powerful the next-gen devices are going to be when you compare them to a cluster of more than 1,700 PS3s. So the last thing I want to talk about today is something that's not completely earth-shattering or crazy or part of some dark, deep conspiracy on the internet. It's really just this fun theory about Disney's Aladdin from 1992. The theory claims that Aladdin is actually taking place in a post-apocalyptic world and not some long-forgotten time from centuries ago. So why don't we take a look at some of the ideas behind the claim. In the movie, there's a scene where Genie refers to Aladdin's clothes as so last century. Genie was trapped in the lamp for 10,000 years, so there's no way he would have known about fashion trends that could have happened while he was in the lamp. By this logic, the latest Genie could have been trapped in the lamp during the 3rd century. If he spent 10,000 years in the lamp, it's at least 10,300 AD when he's freed. In this future, Arabic and Greek were the survivors, Arabia had been twisted into Agrabah, and gone are the mosques and prayer mats within the Islamic faith, but people still praise Allah in times of happiness. There are some technical achievements left behind from the old civilization, like flying carpets and genetically engineered parrots that comprehend speech instead of mimicking it. These things are taken for granted in this future, and merely referred to as magic. Within the movie, Genie also does impressions of Groucho Max and Jack Nicholson, which in this timeline, they would be long dead. A final piece supporting this theory comes from the Aladdin Sega Genesis video game. In one level, there is a modern stop sign in the sand, as well as human bones. Looking at that evidence, it doesn't really seem like a whole lot. Um, one could argue that, well, it's a Disney movie, so they're obviously going to have 
some references to current events and current things going on in the 90s and things like that to cater to a wider audience, etc., etc. On top of that, here are some arguments also against this theory. Because Genie is a genie, he's an omnipotent being with a different perception of time and reality, similar to a Time Lord from Doctor Who. Genie did not have to be alive back then to have infinite knowledge of a certain culture. Rather, he's just making a quick joke. Some may argue, well, why would he do that if Aladdin wouldn't get the jokes? And leading theorists argue that Aladdin wouldn't have understood the jokes the genie was referencing, but after 8,000 years, Aladdin wouldn't even know who Groucho Marx was. Agrabah, magic, and the Islamic religion could just as easily have evolved over thousands of years instead of devolving. Lastly, genie says, indoor plumbing is going to be huge, using future tense and showing that he knows what will happen in the future. And... Just want to also throw out there, the video game is technically not canon, so it really can't support much of this theory. For me, it's less of a matter of was this the actual intention of the writer's room? Did they intend for this to be actually some post-apocalyptic world and things like that? I don't really care as much about that. It's just a fun thing to think about, just kind of a nice, funny little spin on a classic story from my childhood and many other childhoods. So I hope you guys, uh, I hope you guys liked it. Thank you, as always, for listening to the show. It means the absolute most to me. Uh, we're having a lot of listeners coming in from all kinds of different countries and stuff, and it's really awesome to see those numbers rise and see the locations, you know, kind of spread. So as always, continue to spread the word to your friends and your family and colleagues. And continue to rate and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you can rate and review. And if you didn't see the post on Facebook at The Strange Collective Podcast, we are now available on Amazon under the Amazon Music or Amazon Podcasts. So if you ask your Alexa device to play The Strange Collective Podcast, it should come up now. Uh, I'm still waiting to hear back from Pandora. I did reach out to them. So soon people will be able to listen to the podcast on Pandora and at that point, we'll pretty much be on every single podcast platform possible, so it's pretty awesome. As always, don't forget to like and follow and everything like that on social media. That would be The Strange Collective Podcast on Facebook. It would be The underscore Strange underscore Pod on Twitter. And then don't forget that we are on Patreon if you want to ever support the show financially. And you would follow the link that's in the description of this episode, or just try and search on Patreon for The Strange Collective Podcast. There are some benefits that you can get on the Patreon, but more than ever, it's just really a way for you to support the show if you want. The Strange Collective is hosted, edited, produced, written, all that jazz, by myself, Kenneth Zally. Have a great day.